Okay, welcome to the Expat Diaries podcast. Today we are speaking to, um, I'm just going to say it because his email already kind of told me that, that he's chef of the jungle um, or jungle chef as we have up here right now. Uh, and I know that that's probably not what your moniker is right now and who you are right now, but I know that that's probably the train that you rode in to Costa Rica on. Um, everybody welcome David Mahler. David, so when we spoke um, I was super excited because your story is so unique. And I think that one of the reasons why I wanted to even do this podcast is because I think there's not a lot of good, solid information, real life experiences of what people who are expats in Costa Rica have gone through to get there. And then how, you know, their journey isn't always flawless. Oh, we moved there and we lived in Neverland forever and everything was great, right? Sometimes it's a leave, go back, come back, go back you know, and figure out what life looks like and determine where you want to be. So I know that when we first spoke, um, brought me in on your first um, introduction to Costa Rica. And at that time, you were a chef in San Francisco, right? Hi, Robin. Yeah, more or less. I had uh, I had gotten out of the chef business briefly to work as a salesman for a produce company who wanted a chef to deal with their high-end restaurant clients. And so I was a little burnout at that point on being in the kitchen and been many, many years. And I took the opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, shortly after I began that, I got hit by a taxi cab on the Embarcadero crossing the street with the green light um, with my girlfriend at the time. And it uh, crushed the whole left side of my body. And I lost a year of my life. I went through a couple of surgeries. I went you know, back and forth with Kaiser. It was, a, it was, a, it was an ordeal and it was a, a painful ordeal. Sure. Uh, and so when a friend of mine came to me and I told you the circumstances that I was sitting in a bar with a friend of mine and he wasn't open yet. He was opening the bar and I was just sitting, waiting, reading the sports section and we were watching sports on TV and I was probably having a shot and a beer. And uh, a friend of mine came running in. He's very excitable. He has a stutter when he gets excited. So this made it even more entertaining. And he's a chef, chef, chef. And I said, yes, John. And he says, I got this great deal. And then, you know, when you're when you're a chef, you have to expect that people are going to come to you at various times in your life with propositions. Most of them are are just pie in the sky things. But uh, this one, he, he said, uh, do you, what do you know about Costa Rica? And I said, uh, I know virtually nothing except that it's not an island. And then we laughed and I said, he said, well, I'm looking at my wife, my, my not his wife, his girlfriend had become pregnant and they wanted to have the baby out of the country. Uh, they had a lot of personal reasons about around that. And so he said, we want, we're going to take, we're going to take over the lease on this small boutique hotel down the South Pacific coast in Ojochal. And I think he, I think he may have pronounced it Ojochal at the time because we, oh he didn't speak much Spanish. Um, and so anyway, I said, well, that's, that's fine, John. So why don't you go down there and shoot some video for me and I'll take a look at it, you know, and I just shined what it on. Year, what year was this? This was in 2000. This was spring of 2005. Okay. Okay. And so I just, I presumed that I, I wouldn't hear from him again on this particular subject. And I'm sitting in the same bar about five or six weeks later with, with my friend, Bob, who's opening the bar again. And uh, John comes running in with a laptop and this time he's even more excited. And his chef is, his, 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 uh, his uh, stuttering had become even more pronounced and he's chef, 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 blah, 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 I'm here. And he whips the laptop open and, and shows me these uh, videos of a really, really lovely little place all painted in pastels with a, a nice pool. And then from the from the deck, of course, there's this incredible view of the Pacific. And I said, wow, that's pretty fantastic. Fly me down. <laughs> I'm not ready yet. And so uh, uh, probably three or four weeks later, the tickets appeared. And uh, in sometime in April, I believe, I flew down to, to uh, into, into San Jose and the airport at that time was very small and took a puddle jumper over the mountains where... Uh, we flew so close to the mountains, you could literally see the faces of the people staring up at the plane and came down the other side and then flew into a little town called Palmar Sur. And when I got out and was immediately blasted with a, you know, the blast furnace of humidity and heat that I hadn't expected. And uh, I went, uh, went up the coast a little bit to where this, the, the small hotel was. And uh, it was, it, you know, it was great. They basically seduced me with the entire experience. I got, I saw all the beautiful things that tourists get to see. I, you know, we ate fresh mangoes in the morning. We, we ate fresh shrimp for dinner. We went mm. to a couple of very nice restaurants. Um, I was just out of uh, knee surgery 
And so I did a lot of walking in the surf and that was great. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, we, were at a, we were at a spot where the jungle comes right down to the edge of the beach mm-hmm. and it was pretty fabulous. You know, we even ziplined. And so at the end of it, I had been, I'd been seduced and I said, sure, I'll take the job. And so I went through that summer. I had to get another surgery. I had a surgery on my left shoulder that summer for a rotator cuff that was completely destroyed. And uh, in September, I flew down there. So I packed up. I packed up all my things in San Francisco, and I was living in a small apartment underneath a house. Which so I didn't have a lot, but uh, you know, it was sort of this. There was a certain finality to it, you know, where I got rid of a lot of things. A lot of stuff went to Goodwill. You know, I had boxes and boxes of things. With I ended up with um, two suitcases. That was a commitment. I mean, you were committing to the journey, to the. I, I was at that point. I was. I was tired of being in San Francisco. I was in my mid fifties. Um, I was hitting an age barrier as far as hiring went. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the the crash on the, on the Embarcadero, being hit by the taxi, uh, really was it was probably you know more than a, a, the final straw. It was like the final nail in the coffin mm-hmm. of my life in San Francisco. And so I you know went down there and. Uh, we took it upon ourselves to try to restore this this place, which had, you know, as as happens with things that are in Costa Rica, right by the, the ocean, the humidity and everything, you know, there's mold growing and the walls of the kitchen were, were pretty shabby. Right. So we redid re- the whole thing and it, it turned out to be a, a not a not a happy situation. Unfortunately, it was he had brought his whole family down with him, including his mother, his brother, his cousin, and then the woman he was to marry and their and their child who was born while we were there. And uh, it was a. It was sort of a, a, a them against me situation. And it took us four months to get the restaurant open. September, mm. we opened in December. So it was what, well, October, November, December, three, three and a half months to get the place open. And at that point, you know, for a while, there was a point where I was being used as their personal chef to cook for the family. And that, that sort of struck me the wrong way. In any case, um, you know, I worked for them for a while and through an, into the springtime. And I hadn't been paid for an awfully long time. And so I ended up just saying, that's it. I can't do this any longer. And I was oh, walking. Were they, so were they like, did, were you staying in the hotel as well? So I was like, right. I, one of, one of, the only good part of our deal that they did not renege on was that I would have a place to stay no matter what. Okay. And so I stayed in the hotel. And then finally, when the tourist season hit, they started putting me in various different hotels around town, which was, which was kind of inconvenient and uncomfortable. Uh, but, but it, you know, it worked out to a point. Right. And I finally said, I can't do this any longer. And I quit and I was, staying at, with a friend and I happened to be, I told you the story, walking down a dirt road in Ohochal and we probably were drinking beers at 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, a car stopped and said, uh, are you Chef Dave? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, Henier Guzman up at La Cusinga Eco Lodge um, has heard about you and, uh, and he wants to hire you as a chef. And I thought, well, great, that's great. That's a perfect opportunity timing. You know, the universe works in funny ways. And so I went up there and I talked to him and, uh, and he was uh, amenable to me. And then, you know, he didn't, I, at the time I was enough to have told each other this quite honestly, I had a pretty serious drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Which I brought down to Costa Rica with me. And uh, unfortunately what happens when you're, you're the first off the beach, the beach, the beach life is a drinking life yeah. for a lot of people. And, and when, when the guests, guests come to the hotel, Oh, it's, let's buy the chef a shot, you know, let's buy the chef a beer, let's do this. And so it's, it just sort of steamrolled. In any case, I went to work at La Cusinga, which is a lovely eco lodge. Beautiful. Uh, looks right out over the Pacific. Uh, my kitchen looked out over the Pacific and it was, it worked out. I mean, I cooked some great food there, but also my drinking problem was exacerbated just by my, my drinking as happens. Right. And so I, so I ended up having a somewhat of a spat with him and leaving. And that was in 2006, 2007. This was in, 2000, this was in I started there in spring of two, or I guess winter of 2007, just okay. as, just as 2006 went into 2007. Okay, gotcha. And so I had, uh, I worked there for about three or four months, ended up spending a couple more months in various places in Ohochal doing nothing because I had received the money from my auto, from my my accident, the insurance company had paid up. So there I was, this guy with an alcohol problem and too much money, <laughs> which was, which was really a, really a, a bad, a bad situation. In any case, I ended up going back to the States, going through a, a recovery program uh, treatment for alcoholism when AA so sponsored. When did, you, when did you go back to the U.S.? I went back to the U.S. in December, first week of December. No, no, excuse me, because I, I went into a, 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 a I guess you call it a sanitarium yeah. in, in Costa Rica in, in December of 2007 and went into treatment in, in Austin, Texas on the 3rd of January, 2008. 
let's talk about that treatment in Costa Rica. Like what, what was that like and how did it vary based on the treatment that you ended up succeeding at in Austin? Well, it was, it was, it was rather than being a treatment, it was more of a, uh, more of a rehab for my body. It was, a um, I was, you know, I needed to go somewhere where I could get all the alcohol out of my system. I needed to go somewhere where, Dry and out. I was, and I was in a bad state they, and my doctor couldn't find a hospital room for me. So he ended up, he was also the doctor in-house doctor at a, a house in San Pedro that was filled with Alzheimer's patients. Oh, wow. Ticos. And we'll, and we'll see, we use the word Tico, not in a derogatory way. Right. It's what they call themselves. And, uh, and it was, it was a very bizarre situation. You know, I'm lying there, this, 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 this alcoholic, you know, a, a gringo chef sweating out, sweating out years and years of drinking. And, you know, there's these Alzheimer's that's, patients. That's pleasant in its own right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty horrifying thing. I was going through three sets of sheets a night. It was pretty oh. awful. And the first night there I woke, I awoke and I probably was on the ceiling to this screaming and cursing in Spanish. And it turned out that the gentleman in the room right next to me, and the walls were paper thin, the gentleman in the room next to me not only had Alzheimer's, but he had Tourette's syndrome. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was, uh, he was lying there cursing and screaming. And it was, it, you know, the, the, the first month was, it was, you could, you could write a whole short story about the whole thing because it was every morning I'd wake up and because they all had Alzheimer's, they, every morning I had to reintroduce myself to everyone. <laughs> that, that's actually kind of comical. And I think it would be a funny short story. And so you were in, you were there in that, in that place for 30 days? 30 days, right. And at that point, I realized that I needed I needed not just to get the alcohol out of my system, I needed to reprogram myself. I needed to get a new way of thinking. And so I ended up in a treatment center run by Austin Recovery in Austin, Texas, that my younger sister had found for me. And it turned out to basically save my life. And did it help that you had already basically detoxed? Yeah, it did, because I was able to, at the end of a month, I was thinking a lot more clearly. Right. And, the, you know, and the clear, the clarity told me, you know, you've got to get your life straight. Right. And you've got to figure, you've still got time. You don't give up. You're in your mid fifties, you know, do something about this. Right. And it basically, I'm not, I'm not here to proselytize about AA or talk about any of that, but it, I, for me, it worked, it saved my life. Right. And I've been sober for 16 years since then. That's amazing. And for so many people, you know, have the same results also. Um, I do want to, so you're in, so you're in Austin, you go through rehab and what year is that again? That was in 2008. Okay. 2008. So you're done there and then you're still in the U S right. I'm in the U S and I'm working for whole foods. Okay. Um, I went down there with my very impressive resume and photographs of all my food and the reviews of the places that I uh, had worked and they put me to work making sandwiches. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody loves a good sandwich. Everybody loves a good sandwich. Exactly. So in, in, in any case, I was uh, while I was doing that, the gentleman, who, Henier, who uh, was the general manager and owner, son of the owners of La Cusinga, had kept writing to me. That's Even though I had I, our, our parting of the ways had been uh, really kind of an ugly situation. And uh, he kept writing to me and asking me how I was doing and how my recovery was coming and if I was still sober and this and that. And then finally... Uh, probably mid mid fall, uh, he asked me if I ever thought about coming back. And at this point, I'd been sober about eight months, and I said, I'm, you know, I'm really not ready to do this. Yeah, I would say, were you worried that like you would fall back into that pattern? Yeah, exactly. It was just I wasn't really. I was, you know, I, I felt good. I felt like I was never going to drink again. But I also didn't. I felt like I needed a little more time just to to, to mentally get myself in that state. And so things at Whole Foods, I, I applied for a, a management position and they, they didn't even show up to interview me. <laughs> and a couple of things like that happened with, with work there. And I thought, you know, it's time to get out of here. It's time. I need to get back to being the chef of the jungle. But because I completely lost that. Right. And so I wrote back to Henier probably in early December. And I said, you know, I think I'm ready to come back if, you're, if you'll have me back. Mm -hmm. And I said, I understand if you don't want to, you know, I understand we had some bad situations. And he said, no. Please, you know, I, I need you. I need you down here. So come back. So I flew down in January. I went through ho the holidays with my family, with my sister and her husband and flew back down. And for the next two and a half years or two years and a couple of months, worked at La Cusinga. Everything worked out successfully. I was basically had had really had I'd recovered from alcoholism, which doesn't happen for a lot of people. Sure. But I, I turned what had been just a, a guest only dining room into a public dining room. I ended up writing a, a food column for a local magazine that showed up in all the hotels monthly. I even, uh, there was a radio program where I did an interview once a month. 
nice. you know, see, you know, talk, we talk talking food with the chef of the jungle. And it was great. It was, it worked out really marvelously, Robin. And it was, you know, I was, I was lucky how it worked out, but as usual things after two, two years or so, I, I needed more money. I needed uh, more more of a, you know, just a, 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 a response to the, to the, the success that I brought to the place. Correct. Because our, our name was all of a sudden we were the best restaurant on the coast and we were doing what I call jungle coastal cuisine. And I was cooking all local products, fresh fish. So, you know, I had, had contacted with a couple of farmers I was one of the first chefs down there who had worked with local cuisine like their local products like that. But it just it needed it, it needed more and I needed more input. And also during that time, I became tremendously lonely. Mm. I was you know, living by myself for, for quite some time. And I hooked up with an old girlfriend and we started talking for about three months. And I made a trip to see her in Oregon. She came to Costa Rica. There was a plan that I was going to she was going to we were going to live six months in Costa Rica and six months in Oregon. And I'd arranged, there's a young, very nice young couple up in Dominical who had opened an ice cream place. And they were making ice cream out of jungle flavors, all everything fresh, fresh cream, all that kind of stuff. And they'd eaten at my place three or four times and loved it. So they, they talked to me and asked me if I would be interested in being partners with them up in Dominical and taking the space that they had. And they had, they had a chance to, for a lease on part of the other spot. And uh, we'd run a restaurant together. He was a graduate of the Culinary Academy up in Hyde Park in New York. Nice. And... Uh, so we started to do this, and but what happened was is that the municipality of, and this is a classic Costa Rica situation, the municipality just found out that the successful chef was going to come in and, and take the space, and they raised their taxes and their rent by a significant amount. And, you know, so that's a, so I think that a lot of people who are considering moving to Costa Rica, things like that are like little red flags for them, right? They're like, oh, the corrupt government or the corrupt municipalities or whatever happens. And, and I know that in a, in a couple of different instances, we have experienced that also. But I think that um, we experienced that in the States as well. Sure. Um, and um, so not to just go, oh, my God, this is the thing. It's a corrupt government down there, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that's true. But I think there are pockets of incidences where um, greed and uh, corruption are in every walk of humanity. Absolutely. But, and I think that there's, you know, people who come down to Costa Rica, come down here and are confronted with, I mean, weird, weird things at the bank, weird things with taxes, weird things with your paperwork, trying to get residency, all but these things are registered. And, and, and for most people, it's in a foreign language. Right. I, I speak relatively decent Spanish. I worked in restaurants in, in, in California most of my life and learned to speak kitchen Spanish from uh, my, my Mexican and uh, Salvadoreño helpers. And, uh, and then, you know, so I was able to, to, to at, least, at least understand the basics, although I couldn't understand what they were saying at the, at the garage Correct. for my car, also known as the tire. I couldn't yeah. understand the things that they were saying at the bank. And I couldn't understand really the things that they were saying at the, at the municipality when I was trying to, to get my papers done and to get all to, be, to become a resident. And so those are the things I think that throw people off a lot. It's right. it's it's difficult to make those connections if you're used to, and and, and things are more difficult here. They they love to to stamp things and they love to have twenty sheets of paper for something that really doesn't take more than one or two. It's it's I don't know what the what the the mentality is behind it, but it's it's funny. I was getting my residency. I applied re, I reapplied for my third residency card yesterday. They, it's, yeah, they last two years at a time, and I was just laughing to myself about watching this young woman. And she's stamping and stamping and stamping these things. And I, I thought to myself, you know, it's, I've been here since 2005 off and on, and they haven't improved the system. <laughs> this, is what they, this is still the way they do it. And it was, it's, uh, you know. Well, to, anyway. them, to them, it's not broken. No, it's not. It's not. Excuse me, my phone's going off. So anyway, I, 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 left, I left Costa Rica and went back to the States for seven years uh, from 2000, actually maybe six years from 2000. How hard was that, How hard was that to leave? this and then go back into the hubbub of what you know we live in the u.s Especially well, it, was, it, it, it could have it could have been a lot worse although i was i was living in semi-rural oregon that's true and, and so i was living i was living about 30 miles east of salem up in a little bitty town called scott's mills the population was 53 and 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 the woman i moved in with had a a, a farm with uh, 13 acres and a couple of horses and basically i became the farm help you know, I painted the fences. I, uh, you know, I, I, I stained the decks. You know, I waterproofed the roof right before winter started and all those things. I, my husband, 
is the farm help right now. Yeah, exactly. And you understand that. I and um, I had gone to work uh, really, and, and things kept getting better for me work-wise. And this is something I tell us is going to happen in AA if we continue with the program. And I went to work first in, in Salem as a catering chef. And I got hired by McMinimins, which is a big restaurant chain there that that, made, that does burgers. And I was at their their flagship place over in, uh, in McMinnville in the wine country in Oregon. And, uh, and then, and then I went to work. I didn't, those, those weren't taken. I hated, I hated being there. They, they expected a lot and they didn't want to give you a lot. I'm not going to get into that. In any case, I went to work then up at Mount Hood at uh, Hood, Mount Hood Meadows Ski Resort. And I oversaw for two seasons, I oversaw five restaurants and, uh, and a staff of about 60 people. And then it got headhunted. I'd never, and this had never happened to me before. I got headhunted by this woman out of Los Angeles. And she kept talking to me about this and that and this and that. And it turned out to be that she was working for Google, uh, actually Bon Appetit, who was the in-house caterer for Google. And she said, are you interested in working for a corporation? And knowing where I was, uh, that there are not that many corporations around, I intuited wow. almost immediately that it was gonna be Google. And I thought, this is great because I'm gonna get benefits. I'm gonna work all year round working at the ski resort. I worked only, I'm, I have to turn this down. I'm so sorry. This is my phone going crazy. That's real life. That's real life. Exactly. And what year was that? That was, let me think. This is probably going to be 2015, 14 or 15. Okay. And I did go to work for Google and it was uh, a good opportunity. And the, you know, as I said, I got full medical insurance. I got paid probably close to twice what I'd ever made in a restaurant, even in my highest paying chef's jobs and work Monday through Friday from 6.30 to 2.30 and went home every night and didn't think about wake up at one in the morning worrying about whether or not I'd ordered the chickens right. or you know this and that because it was just it was so stable. I mean the restaurant business people don't understand they're like oh it seems so romantic right and they don't <sighs> understand like I mean the amount of loss food loss and not I mean it's just so all encompassing that like every time I even think about having people over for breakfast I'm like holy crap <laughs> I have enough eggs and I'm having people over for breakfast. I can't imagine having to staff and prepare and stock for an unknown quantity of humans that you're going to feed that you don't know what you're going to feed them. Here are all the variables. Right. Restaurants, restaurants are like that. And that was, uh, and that, right. and I, 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 I have to say I was good at it. I'm sure. And I, and, uh, you know, I got, I got hired and I, I worked in a lot of very, very good places and was good at what I did. And uh, unfortunately, I had that while I was still drinking, I had that that condition that a lot of us have where there's that fear of failure and a fear of success. So when you first take the job, you work, you don't mind working seven days a week, 80, right. 90 hours a week, because you're not going to fail and you're right. going to do what you told them you could do. And then you get to that point and it's working and it's running. And then I would, you know, and other people do this as well. I would self-destruct. And self-sabotage, uh, self all of those fun things. Self-sabotage. And I would move on to the next place. So in any case, when I got to Google, it was great because I had you exactly how many people I had every day. I only did breakfast and lunch. I had to pre-write my menus and the menu changed daily, but I had to pre-write them for a month in advance. And so there was, there was everything was well-ordered and, and, uh, and, and logical rather than like in a restaurant where you go, oh my God, tonight, how did we spell 17 of these and only two of these when we consider this to be a far better dish? What, you know, and then, then you've got a bunch of this, like you were talking about leftovers, you've got a bunch of this lying around in your kitchen and you're going, well, what am I going to do with it? So Google was a, was a breath of fresh air in a lot of ways. Yeah. And at that, at that point I was diagnosed, well, I had been diagnosed earlier, but I was diagnosed with uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, okay. which is a non-fatal type of leukemia but as my as my oncologist told me, this is not something you're going to die with. But it's 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 not something you're going to die from. It's something you're going to die with. Okay. So you'll carry it with you your entire life, and it will keep coming back every couple of years, like a little gift that keeps giving. And so I went through uh, five months of chemo, and uh, Google paid for every in Oregon. In Oregon, yeah, with, yeah. Right over at, at uh, Salem Oncology, okay. and Google paid for the whole darn thing. Wow. And they paid me my full salary. And I, so I would go get, I would go get treatment um, for the next five days. I would, I would respond like somebody who'd been hit by a truck because that's pretty much what chemo does to you. And then I'd go back to work and I would, you know, look at my staff and talk about what was going and look at the menus and spend most of my time in my office because I was really weak. I'm sure your energy but level. They, they, they were bon appetit. I have to, I have to say it was wonderful. 
They let me come back each time for been work for two and a half weeks, paid me my full salary, which was not uh, insubstantial. So in any case, I this is, this is where the story gets kind of funny. While I was during getting my cancer treatment, I got a, an email from a woman who was out of the blue. And she said, hey, I'm, I, I'm, I'm living in a house, a little cabin that you used to live in and rent. Uh, and it's in the jungle. And she, I knew where it was, of course. It was a, my friend Tom Daly owned it. And she said, you know, we're looking to sell it. And would you be interested? And I, I just, my heart went, oh, God, would I ever. But I'm also in the, I'm like in third, I just finished my third round of chemo out of six rounds. And I'm like, you know, I said to her, look, I'm sorry. I, you know, I would love to do this, but really, I don't know if I'm living or dying at this point. Right. And so I don't, I'm not really buying property. <laughs> and and she, she said, well, I understand. And so I went back to work at, at Google and worked the next calendar year. And coming up the springtime, I was just, I was living in a town called the Dalles. It's scenic, but it's also like, it's right where at the edge of that, coming out of Portland, where a redneck really starts <laughs> happening. And, you know, I used to tell people as a somewhat of a joke that the town was fueled by alcohol, petroleum and methadrine. Uh. Um, and it pretty much was. And it was a generational town, by which I means that your grandfather lived there, your father lived there, your parents lived there, you still live there. And you, got going stuck. To you got stuck and couldn't get out. Right. And Portland and going to Portland was like going to Paris. Yeah. You know, people go, oh, my God, you went to Portland. <laughs> what was it like? Yeah. And how did you do that? Anyway, so <laughs> I, I, out of the blue, I wrote this woman back and I said, hey, I don't know if you sold the little cabin, um, but I'm, I, if you haven't, I'd be interested in talking to you about it. And she wrote back within probably an hour and said, you know, it's amazing you would do this. We didn't sell it yet. We decided to live in it for another year. I'm just printing up the flyers to put wow. on the telephone poles to, to, uh, to put up the for sale signs. That's I amazing. Said, don't, don't, I said, don't do anything. I'll take it. And, you know, the, this went to that. And we ended up making the agreement on how much it was going to be. And it turned out that I was flying as I, I did this yearly for a while. I flew down to New Orleans for Jazz Fest. I have a very good friend, an old chef in San Francisco, who lived about two blocks from the fairgrounds in New Orleans, and it was a stay with him for free. Go to the go to Jazz Fest, hang out, go to New Orleans. You know, going to New Orleans is like going to a foreign country anyway. And it was it was it great. So, great. It so is. Yeah, it's probably more like a foreign country than any city in the oh United God. States. But in any case, so I was able. I flew through. Went to, went to Jazz Fest. Went to both weekends. Flew down to flew down to Costa Rica. Paid her cash for the house. Went to the bank, got all the papers signed, did the whole deal and thought, well, OK, I'll, I'll keep working at Google and make some more money because I'm making really good money mm -hmm. and I'll rent the house out. And I get down to I get back home and I'm back at Google and I'm you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you have an out and you're and you're doing something and you think yeah. that it gets it gets it gets closer and closer and, and more shiny and more shiny as you're thinking about it. You know, and so I finally gave my notice at Google and I talked with a woman down here in, down in Costa Rica in uh, Uvita, a place between Uvita and Ojochal called Bayena Bistro. Oh, I know her. Do you know Anya? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. So anyway, we we talked on WhatsApp. I was introduced to WhatsApp for the first time and she and I talked for about three months that summer. And while I was still, I'd given my notice, I'd given three months notice at Google because I'm an honorable individual. And uh, and, and stop for a second, because a huge shout out, if you're on, on the Costanera and you're heading south and you see Bayana Bistro, pull over and go have some lunch because it's a lovely place. It is it's a lovely place. And uh, she's no longer involved in it. Uh, she sold it to uh, one of her waitresses, who's also a lovely woman and really and doing a, a great job with it. And uh, it's it is a great place. It's a very cool places. You know, it's open air, and the food is good, and it's uh, it's a good stop. And it's friendly and warm and lovely. It is. Everybody there is so charming. Very, yeah. So anyway, I went. I I came back to Costa Rica, and I got rid of all my stuff. I'd broken up with the girl in Oregon um, a couple of years prior, and so I once again packed up all my things, got rid of everything. I spent the last three nights in the Dalles sleeping on the floor oh. because I because I'd sold my bed. <laughs> I said pretty good, pretty good, made, made a pretty good take selling off all of my things and, and came down to Costa Rica and moved into my little house. I bought a car. You know, I did all the things that I needed to get. Okay. So stop there. Cause you pass over that. Like that's just an easy thing. Oh, right. Do. Right. We should, we should talk about the experience right. of buying a car. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, that's probably, so um, when I bought my first vehicle in Costa Rica and I bought it from a gringo from Canada, um, and then I had to deal with the mechanics and I had to deal with a lot of stuff. I mean, that was no easy feat in itself. And first of all, you're like just so uncertain that you've 
done the right thing, purchase the right vehicle, get the Machamo? Do we have everything that we need? I mean, to me, that was probably one of the most, I felt so accomplished when I got that completed and I had a legally, uh, a legal vessel to transport myself back and forth and it was four wheel drive. And, um, and I'm going to tell you a really short story because it's stupid hysterical. So the, uh, I had rented a tree house, um, at least a tree house for a year from this American couple that lived down in Florida, um, uh, in, um, in Uvita. And I had, um, came across this 1986 Toyota Land Cruiser that this gentleman had drove down from Canada like 10 years earlier. And um, so made the deal, bought the thing. He gave me all the instructions. We went out driving it. It was um, it was a dinosaur and it had some quirks and things that you had to do. Push this button before you do this thing right here. And he had handwritten me out notes. Now, Did you have to rotate the hubs to put it in four-wheel drive? I had lockout hubs, yes. Um, and so, but the thing is, is that um, we'd gone up and down his mountain and he's like, we can get up and down my mountain in two-wheel drive and, pro and probably yours will be that way too. You'll be fine. So um, it, it, he was wrong. Um, and by the time I was going up my mountain all by myself, like my husband wasn't there, my best friend Beverly wasn't there and it's dark and there's no service there's service at the bottom and there's service at the top whenever I would get to my house, but there was nothing in between. Not a single light. No, no, dark as crap, nothing but wildlife out there. And then it's, you're on, I'm going up the mountain. So it's like a slick, it's a slick drop off on my one side. And so I start going up and I realize I'm spinning gravel. I've got to put, I've got to put it in four wheel drive. So I take my phone out. I turn my flashlight on. I pull the notes out of the glove box. I'm reading step-by-step <laughs> -step instructions as I'm on the side of this mountain and I'm reading them and I keep going through it. And um, I'll tell you, and I'm a boomer. So it's like, I should know some stuff that I didn't know. Like, I don't know that I've ever had lockout hubs before. And so he walked me through it and I thought I paid attention, which I'm notoriously famous for not paying attention. There's usually a support staff of mine somewhere like my husband or my best friend who uh, they're the ones that pay close attention to stuff. I'm big picture. And so I keep getting out. I lock, I lock in the hub. I get back in, I put it in gear and it dies. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? What am I doing wrong? I'm literally, I just am screaming on the side of this mountain because I just don't know, like, I don't know how to get up this mountain. There's no one to help me. And then finally, I'm like, I wonder if there's one of those things on the other side too. <laughs> it's like such a stupid girl thing to do. And so I take my flashlight and go around and see that there is a lockout hub on the other one too. So I do it, get in the track and like, and it goes, oh, I mean, I, I make it up the mountain. I make it um, to the treehouse. I call my best friend and my business partner and I call him like, oh my God, if there was ever a time that someone did not think that I was a badass, they are wrong. <laughs> All by myself, I just got this vehicle up the mountain in the dark in four wheel drive, locked it in, did the whole thing, screamed my guts out. I cried a tiny little bit and then I got there. <laughs> and so, um, so that ordeal of purchasing a vehicle in Costa Rica still traumatizes me to this day. But, um, I know that it can seem overwhelming and I see those conversations in the groups a lot. So, sure. talk about your experience with that. Well, it's, it's what, what, you know, in, in the States, you buy a car from somebody, you sign the pink slip, you give them, you, you know, they, they signed it back, the papers to you, you go away. Right. In Costa, in Costa Rica, if you buy a car, you have to go to an attorney, the abogado. Yep. And you have, to both, you have to both go to the abogado and pay the abogado some money for the transfer. And then everybody's got their finger in every single little business transaction that goes on. And then there oh, are they all, the stamps. they all have the stamps. They, have and to they had the stamps. Man. <laughs> of course they did. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be official if they didn't have. Them. And then what you don't understand also is that not you don't just have to get a registration. There are two things. There is the Reteve. Yes. And there is the Marchamo. Yes. Marchamo is a yearly thing that you pay every 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 December. And the value has recently gone way up because the government has decided they weren't making enough money off the Marchamo. But, but I've paid as little as $70 and I've paid as much as $180 for my Marchamo yearly. The Reteve is another thing and it's monthly and, it, and each car has a different Reteve based on a license plate. And so you go on Reteve and this is when they do, they decide whether or not your car is roadworthy. Uh, I always opted for having the guy, one of the guys from the garage where I took it, take it to the market because they're, 
if, if Ticos take the cars, it's like, okay, sure, see you later. Gringos take the cars, it's like, oh, your rear tire sticks out about six millimeters over the edge of the at the edge of the fender. And so, no, we can't do this. You have to bring it back. You have to get it fixed and bring it back. And so I would just, I would have the guys from the garage take it there. And that, and that worked out a lot better. And anyone who buys a car, just develop a relationship with the mechanic right. because it's so easy to get ripped off by mechanics, especially when they're speaking in a language that you don't understand. And even if you do, like me, speak Spanish, um, you know, what the parts of your car and the things that they do to it are a whole different vocabulary than what you learn in Spanish one and two in school. Correct. So in any case, I bought, when I came back, I bought a, and I was really proud of myself for doing this. I bought a Toyota 4Runner 2001. I mean, it was old, but it only had 120, 109,000 miles on it when I bought it. Original miles. Wow. And that thing could, the four-wheel drive on it. I'd never driven a four-wheel drive vehicle. Four-wheel drive on it felt like it could go up a wall. And it could go up any hill in in around that area. And, and we should probably explain to people that the, the, the area of Costa Rica we're talking about is the South Pacific beaches. And the mountains go straight up from the beaches. And right. so a lot of people have chosen to live and build their homes and home sites up on the sides of these mountains because the view is glorious, spectacular, and everything else that you could possibly want from stepping out on your deck. And unpaved. And unpaved, yes. Oh, nothing is paved. But things are starting to get paved. Right. But that's it. That could be years away. In any case, yeah, you go up and, and there's holes. And once it rains, it becomes a whole another a whole another you know game completely. Once it rains. So anyway, I bought this. I bought this vehicle, and it had. A, I had to have the brakes replaced. I had to have the clutch replaced both within the first couple of months, and then it ran like a dream. And so my advice, unless you're buying a new car, unless you're going to do something like that when you come down here, I would I would try to find a Toyota 4Runner because if you're living down in that part of the world, it's probably the best car for that for that situation. And back to your uh, your your story about the Toyota you were driving. I drove a 1969. I was house sitting for a guy, a 1969 Toyota Land Cruiser. Old school, you know, the one that looks like a truck cab and everything. And he lived way at the top of the mountain in, a, in an A-frame that he'd built. And it was the same situation going up and down where I had to stop at the bottom and do the hubs. So they would drag me basically up the mountain. And I don't know if anybody's ever watched the series on Netflix or wherever it's at right now, um, Shameless. Um, but um, when we got the, uh, the vehicle, we named it the Gallagher um, because it was not attractive, but it got the job done. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I finally just sold mine after having had it for seven years, six years. Wow, that's awesome. And I only put I only put twenty thousand miles on it. Wow. In the entire time, because living down in the down the area, you know, you know the area. It's there's not you don't go a lot of places. You do your best not to have to go to San Jose if you can oh, help right. it. Although the, the the roads have improved, you know, in a major way. But it was a it was a great car, and I and I still I mean, kick myself occasionally. I, I still see the guy who uh, who drive who I sold it to because he's in my AA meetings. So every time I go, there's my car parked there, nice. and he's and he's given it the love that it needs. He's polished it and shined it up, and it looks really great. So, Good. but but moving on. Any in any case, I came back here. I went I went to work with Anya at uh, Bayana Bistro, and it just didn't work out. She was very attached to what she was doing. And even though for a full summer, we talked about all the changes she wanted to make because she was ready to move forward. I got down there and we started cooking some things and she just froze up and couldn't do it. Couldn't make the changes. And I, and I didn't want to serve hamburgers and, and quiche as much as I like hamburgers and quiche. They're both wonderful things, but it wasn't, wasn't what I was doing. And I managed to, um, at this point, I decided, well, screw it. I'm here. I live here now. Figure out what you can do, David. So I decided I would put my brain to work to figure out how I could best uh, utilize my skills as a private chef. And I was looking around for a kitchen to use. I, my, my house, the, my little cabin was way too small to do anything may, other than maybe a couple of saute things or making a salad. But, you know, I wasn't taking to be able to, to prep things there and take them to people's houses. So I, I, I ended up working in a couple of homes um, through I got in touch with some realtors, uh, some property developers and some people who handled uh, vacation rentals. And they set me up with a couple of different families and I went and cooked for them for two or three days. And that was, it was, it was great. I wasn't making a bunch of money, but it was fine. I was also getting my uh, United States uh, social security checks on a monthly basis, which certainly helped. And then I, uh, the, the, the big, the big thing that happened was I ran into some friends who were 
a state sitting, if you will, at a place called Casa Tortuga down in uh, Ohochal, right across from the entrance to Ohochal, uh, Playa Tortuga, which is a wonderful, wonderful place because it's a, it's a turtle preserve. Right. And they bring, they bring kids and volunteers down from all over the world who come there and work to help with the turtle eggs and help help to the, get the you know get the get the baby turtles going and all that. It's a really wonderful place. But up above it, the gentleman who owns the property is in a, a dentist in the states, and he built this place that has twelve rooms, fourteen rooms. Um, it's in two wings, and it's it probably has I guess thirty two people can stay. Mm. And so I talked to them and I said, "You guys, what do you guys do about the food here?" My friend Frank uh, Tortorello was a ran a deli in Brooklyn. He says, "Well, we don't really know what we're doing, and we tell them to go out here and go out there. But most people want to get don't know what they want to do, and they want they don't want to go out at night. You know, they've been out a couple of times during the day. They've gone to the beach with their kids. They've gone, you know, zip lining in the afternoon. They come back and they're they're tired and they're burnt out. They've been out in the sun all day. Mm-hmm. And I said, Frank, what do you think if you guys offered my services as the chef at Casa Tortuga? And he said. Let's give it a try. And so he ended up, I ended up working as a, as a separate entity from the, from the, uh, the rental agency, the rental part of it. And I would write letters to the people who were coming down and say, this is who I am and introduce myself and put some, some of my, my press and some menus and things in and say, I will be happy to create menus for you. Uh, bring your family. I'll cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so I would, I, that I did that and it worked out really well for two and a half years. Wow. Um, I would, you know, and I wasn't working seven days. I was some of the time I worked. I mean, there were times when I worked 15, 16, 18 days in a row and other times where I was off for a week at a time. But I would end up making enough money from Christmas to Semana Santa, which is Holy Week. And we should throw in here that Semana Santa don't come here during Semana Santa. It's it's the big uh, Costa Rican holiday. They all come to the beach. They bring their furniture. They bring their children. It's funny. There's an expression they have here. They call them the huevos duros hard-boiled eggs. And the Costa Rican joke is, and I'm not sure I entirely get all of it, but the Costa Rican joke is that they bring everything from their house, including the hard-boiled eggs. I made the mistake one time of being down there during Semana Santa and trying to get back uh, to the airport. And what would have typically been like a three and a half hour drive um, from Uvira to San Jose uh, took over eight hours. um, Roadblocks, um, checkpoints, uh, standstill traffic, just, and I had never experienced it before. Matter of fact, we were, we were planning some, some events this year and I'm like, okay, Easter this year is during, is in March, is the last week of March. So, cause I'm normally, yeah, I'm normally, I'm like, don't go in April. And so I'm like, okay, hang on a second. Let's look at March real quick because that's when Semana Santa will be. It is, it is the Tico's country that weekend. Really, we have no place vacationing there during that time. Let them have their vacation time. Exactly. We really don't. And so I would work from, as I said, from Christmas through Semana Santa. And then that was pretty much it because the tourism stopped. And I would make enough money in those four or five months to be able to hang out the rest of the year and, and travel. Nice. And go to the Jazz Fest and, and do the things that I wanted to do. Come back to the States, see my sisters. You know, and, and it was it, it worked out very, very well. And unfortunately, at the end of two and a half years, a couple of things happened. Frank, Frank passed. Um, really in a very surprising, very, very sudden way. And uh, so the, the people, the woman that uh, had been hired to come in and take, sort of put things together, didn't want to work with me. She wanted to do organic vegetable, everything, tofu and, and all vegan. And, and it was just fine. I mean, there's, there's a place, that stuff has a place, but it's not what I do or what I specialize in. And at this point in my life, it may be a, a tiny bit late to change. Um, so in any case, in any case uh, that, that ended that, and I ended up working, doing a few more other private jobs, got hooked up with a place down in, uh, in Ohochal, way up on the mountain. Uh, John and John and uh, his, John Chantry and his wife, and the, the name of it escapes me right now, but it's a nice little hotel that had uh, eight rooms. But they, the big deal was that they had a stage. He was a musician. Yeah, John and, and a, a stage and a, uh, and, a, and a little kitchen. And mm-hmm. so I would do private events there. But in 2020, what happened was two things. COVID came yes, and I had arranged for some private gigs and I had to send back uh, people's deposits because nobody started where I was traveling. And I also came down with my, my second diagnosis of active cancer. Mm. And so 2020 became the year that um, I retired. Congratulations. Thank you. 
And then during this time, a little earlier, I had, I had become, once again, had grown lonely. And so I'd gone on Costa Rica match and had met a lovely, wonderful woman from Peru who spoke pretty decent English and was charming and, and, and good looking and had a great job. And uh, we, we talked on, we actually texted on WhatsApp for three months before we ever met. So I felt like I knew her pretty well and it worked out pretty well. And I ended up marrying her in 2020. Congratulations. First time I've been married in my life. That's amazing. Isn't it? Isn't it? And we still are. And uh, so things are, that's, that's pretty much where things are right now. I, I ended up selling my little cabin Aww. in the jungle, which was too, but we just weren't going back there. And uh, frankly, she, she didn't want to stay there because it was just a, a little on the funky side. A little primitive? A little primitive. And I'm, I'm, I'm good at primitive, but uh, I, understand, I understand how other people aren't. Yeah, I do too. I do and too. So that was fine. Because, you, know, you think about when you think about like the path that most people take to grow up, graduate school, find their career, whatever, find find love or whatever. And so many of them rarely leave their little puddle, you know, their their nucleus, their little environment that they grew up in, like the people outside of Portland, right? Sure. Um, and so to think that of all of the places you've been in your life and that you finally found the one on a dating site in Costa Rica. And she, the same way, the, she the same way, like from Peru, finds the love of her life, who's an American in Costa Rica. And um, that's just an amazing and great story. So you guys got married in 2020? 2020, in uh, April, April of, of 2020. And what is her name? Her name is Liliana. Actually, her name is Julia Liliana Jeanette. There's just three first names. Julia... Julia, it looked like, it looked like you were Julia, checking. Julia Liliana Jeanette Simpson Torres. Nice. And uh, uh, she's a great woman, and I'm very lucky. So anyway, I, I went back and forth in, in reference back to your original original premise when we when you introduced me. Uh, I went back and forth from Costa Rica three or four times before um, before really deciding that I mean I knew this was the place, but I couldn't figure out how to make it work right. And it hadn't been working right. And I needed to, I kept needing to go back to the States to bring money to do, to get myself a little more settled, to figure out what I wanted to do. And when I got back here this time, I realized this, this was it. I'm here for life and I love it here. It's a, it's a, you know, once, once you figure out the, the, all the little tiny things that happen here, you, uh, you know, you figure out how to do it. And so, for example, yesterday I went and got my uh, cedula, which is my residency card renewed for two years, but it's a, you have to make an appointment and you have to go to the bank and it's not like your driver's license or anything like that. It requires physical presence and it requires sitting in a little, a stuffy little office and watching somebody stamp papers. And then you take your picture taken and it's, and your fingerprints done. It's like, the, it's very old school. I love and, it. uh, but I did that and it reminded me of, of all the things that, you know, that, that I, that I have learned, I've learned a tremendous amount of things in being here. So I know that you talk about your sisters in the States. Was there any objection from them when you decided that you were going to move? Not really. They Both my sisters were a little fed up with me, frankly. Um, but from my... I mean, the first time. I mean, after you were sober, were they still fed up with you? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, our, <laughs> it's one of the wonderful things about AA is that it helps you figure out how to rekindle your life and how to make, how to make it up to people that you have done wrong or people who you scared. You know, my sisters were frightened. They were sure I was going to, they were going to bring me home from Costa Rica in a body bag. Mm. I mean, I was that far gone. And so they were, when I, when I got this opportunity, I was working for Google, like, and they were both very happy about that. But when I got this opportunity and I bought the little house and they were happy, I was able to buy some property. I had something I owned for the first time other than cars. And, uh, and they were actually, they were pretty excited for me. Good. And that good. was, a, that was a good situation. The first couple of times, I think they were nervous when I went back down. So if you if you Go could, ahead. if you could tell people who are considering um, becoming an expat, moving to Costa Rica, what is the the greatest thing that Costa Rica offers you? I think it's a there's a a depressurizing when you come here. I think that all of the I don't wake up every day and worry about the, 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 the politics or or any of those things. I don't think about, I mean, I read the paper and I worry about, I worry about my home country, but on the other hand, I don't live there. And that's mm -hmm. very refreshing. And that's, and that's, a, a, there's a sort of a lightening of the load, if you will. I and think I was, I was speaking to somebody else uh, the other day and um, we were talking about that. And 
uh, one of uh, one of the things that she mentioned was when I moved to Costa Rica, I thought I was really coming to, and I'm just going to pick a side, left or right, whatever. I thought I was coming down to an area that was, you know, I was I was going to be really aligned politically, blah 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 blah. And I was like, I said, you know, I never considered that whenever I was considering Costa Rica, like what are their political views? Because like my business partner, her fiance lives in Denmark and I'm not concerned with what they do in Denmark. You know what I'm right. saying? Right. Um, because I don't live there. And when, um, and although um, I would always be concerned with what's going on in my home country, I don't plan on dragging U.S. politics down into Costa Rica. I plan on coming down here, living in peace, living in peace with everybody else that's here. If you have this view, that's fantastic. That really is none of my business. And I think that the minute that we start dragging our U.S. garbage into another country, we have just polluted it. And really, uh, if you want to talk politics, call somebody at home, talk politics about what's going on there. If you're concerned about what's going on, make sure you're proxy voting and you're doing that thing. But really, it doesn't belong to us when we live down here in a peaceful harmony situation where we're going to fight about something hours away. Right. Like, right. I mean, it still, it still goes on. And, and if you're an American as we are, you know, I, I, I still love the United States. Absolutely. And so, but I, and I read the, I read the New York times and then the Washington post every day, just because I, I'm a avid reader and I was a journalism major at Berkeley. So that's a, you know, those, those two things that, you know, my, my interest in the news is, but right. there, there's a couple of websites here that I, that I'm on. One of them is the Costa Viena, the Costa Viena page, which I would recommend people joining if they're planning on going or thinking about going to this part of the coast, because it talks a lot about people you can, I mean, it's just the daily exchanges that people have, but they're mostly, they're like, you know, where can I, where can I find a, uh, oh, somebody wanted to find where they, where they could find an osteopath. And right. somebody else wanted to find where they could find this particular tool for their yard. And somebody else wanted to find where they could find, a, the, you know, something else at a store or a food item. And, and it's sort of, a, it's a, it's a bulletin board, essentially. Right. Absolutely. And it's, and it works out great. And there's occasionally people who jump on there and they start talking politics and mostly they get shouted down. Right. Right. People who just don't want to hear about it. You know, we don't, we can't, I mean, when we, and I feel the same way about the decompression. So I, uh, in the States, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur and I have a, um, have a thriving business here, about 70 employees. And I have to speak publicly at events whenever I'm here. And sometimes like the big events, like whether we're at a conference in Vegas or whatever, and there's a lot of pressure on everything that goes on in that thing. And then I used to, like the minute I would leave that conference, I would be done with that. I would make sure I just headed straight to Costa Rica. And when I would land, it would just be like a huge flushing of garbage of like, Okay, now I'm here. I literally sent my daughter uh, a video one time and I was like, I don't even know if you can see this because I'm not I'm not an emotional person. I'm not really emotional. I'm like, I'm crying right now just because I'm so relieved from all of the stress that is leaving my body from just being here. And and I was all alone. Like I'm in the treehouse all alone. There's nobody around me like there's neighbors, but you don't see them. You don't know where they're at. I didn't really know anybody. I was just really there to decompress and uh, get rid of all of that and just enjoy where I was at. And I feel the same way. I grew up in central California my entire life, lots of agriculture, lots of farming, all of that stuff, not like what people think of California. Um, and yeah, and I, and I think about when I, when I think, when I come to Costa Rica, it reminds me, I think I told you this, it reminds me of California 1973, you know, when I was growing up and that there were still dirt roads in California that you drove down miles, you know, next to great vineyards, not wine ones, the Thompson green grapes, right, and you right. can pull over, pull your pocket knife out, steal some grapes, get on, go on your way. And nobody cared. Right. Well, here and you can do it with bananas. Yeah, for sure. And so I, that's how I feel about it. And so whenever I see um, a lot of turmoil or tumultuous conversations back and forth in some of the groups, I, I just want to go, look, that's not what this is about. There's not a bunch of angry Americans sitting down here ready to tell you you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing and stay where you're at. You know, this is a loving, peaceful country. One of the things that I love the most about it are the people. And I think the Ticos are some of the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. Even if you don't speak Spanish and they don't speak English, they're going to find a way to communicate with you to figure out what it is that the, so both of you can mutually get to wherever you need to be. And it's not going to be like if you've ever visited Mexico, sometimes like you feel like you're just getting shystered because you don't speak the language. I, 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 
funny, like, <laughs> I'm going to talk about them like this. And I never feel like that when I'm in Costa Rica. I feel like we're genuinely working towards reaching some sort of outcome that is mutually beneficial. That's um, true. I, I, I did, I, I, I wrote, I, I did write a blog from here for several years that you can find on, uh, on WordPress it's called uh, chef of the jungle. And I'll, I'll uh, link it. I will link it in the comments. Thank you. It's anyway, it's, there's a, uh, I wrote a, a, one of the, one of the, the entries that I wrote was on Pura Vida, Pura Vida, Pura Vida. which is the national saying, which means it means pure life. Right. Uh, and, but it's, it's also, you know, people say to you, como, como estas, Pura Vida. Uh, at the end of your conversation, they say Pura Vida. It's just, it's something that they just throw in, but it also, and the irony of it, of course, is like, for example, you take your car to the Taller, which is the word here for garage, T-A-L-L-E-R. And I, a lot of people here come here and they want to know what the Taller is. Um, it's not the Taller, it's the Taller. I, I wanted to know too. I was like, why am I taking my car to the Taller? Exactly. The uh, and then and you go and the guy says to you, well, yeah, and you go to get the car and it's not ready. In fact, they haven't even thought about getting the part. And you say, he'll say, he say, dos días más pura vida. And so pura vida becomes the national excuse as well as the national motto. It's it's like, okay, well, we didn't get this done, but you know, hang loose. We, because we, yeah. we are. Relax, <laughs> just relax, man. Just relax, yeah. You don't need the car that badly. I mean, even if you do, it's there's not really much you can do about it. So you have to uh, adopt a Pura Vida attitude about it. I find that the, the uh, you were talking about the people being friendly. I found the coast, the coast particularly, people down there, they're, it's a little more rural. You know, they're, uh, it's, you do, I did notice over the last 10 years that, you know, every single kid has a, has a, has his own phone and it's, there's a lot of, you know, Americanisms that have crept into, uh, even the rural parts of Costa Rica, but still the people down there are very, very friendly. Right. And I, I was, I was the only gringo living within four or five houses of the area that I lived in. And my neighbors were really, really supportive. And they would, you know, they'd come by and they'd stop. And there was a guy, guy that drove his cattle up and down the dirt road that I lived on. And I'd stop and talk to him. And he owned several of the, the properties around. And he was really friendly. He'd come down to my yard and we'd sit and talk. And he wore a straw cowboy hat. And he turned out he was about 85 years old. And he still drove his cattle up and down the road. And it was just, it was great. I, you know, I made some good friends with the the, the, the kids who worked for me and their families. And uh, they would they would fight at Christmas time over whose abuela grandmother made yep. the best tamales, and then they would bring me different. They would all bring me tamales at Christmas time, and there was just this, this. There was a very loving environment, and I found it more so in the older generation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 72, and so there were a lot of people there that I could relate to on that level. Uh, Although having worked in a restaurant all my life, it sort of it sort of retarded my emotional development. Um, <laughs> but in any case, uh, I found that a lot of the older people are just really there's a charm to them, mm -hmm. a really warm and welcoming and loving attitude about people, no matter who you are. You know, oh my God, your tire came off your car. Okay, let me get my friend. My 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 cousin is three houses down, and he's got a jack, and then his friend has this, and they'd come and and help you do this, and you offer to buy to do something for them, and they, yeah, put a vida. And they walk away. And that's and that's one of the really charming things about living in Costa Rica. And that's what's really made me, kept me here. And, and, and had, had, I keep loving it because there's no no place I found that's better. I love it. All right. Well, I know you have a lot of stuff to get to today. You have some, uh, some a little bit of chaos in your life today. So I'm going to, wrap, <laughs> a little bit. I'm going to wrap this, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to uh, link uh, chef of the jungle.com so people can uh, go and read some of the blogs that you've made. And I loved visiting with you. I'm so happy to get your story. It's colorful. There's so many different, I, I think there's so many lessons to be learned in here. Like that, like don't feel like a failure if you came here and left. You know, if you still want to come back, come back and, and revisit this again. Or Absolutely. if you were here for a season, if you were here for three years, that's part of the ribbon of your life that you wouldn't have had any other way that so many people have never done. And so being an expat, even if you're only an expat for a couple of years, that's okay. It's not like, oh, you quit going back home to America. Yeah, you're, never, you're, not, you're not a failure. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's hard. It's, it's, not, it's not easy, it's not easy um, making the initial the initial developments, right. but once you, once you make them and you get comfortable, it's like, wow, this is great. I mean, it, it's wonderful. And you were talking about getting off the plane. And, and I used to feel, I used to say that they, all my stress came out through my pores with that first, that first sweat that I broke when I hit, when I hit the humidity. But that, that, and, it's, and I must tell you, for people who are worried about that, no, you get used to it. Oh, 100% you do. As a matter of yeah. fact, after a while, like it's, I, I, most of the places that I um, have had long-term 
didn't have AC and it, I didn't care. As long as I had a fan, I was good. Matter of fact, in, in the middle of the night, I was probably throwing a blanket on because the temperature had dropped and it was, it was nice and cool like that. So I didn't have that problem. Exactly. Well, David, get on. Uh, I hope uh, Miss Lily is feeling better. And um, as always, uh, Pura Vida. And Pura Vida. Robin, thank you, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. And if you have any questions or anybody does, um, feel free to contact me. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much.